0: Two and a half admins, episode 51. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And your usual blog post plug, this time Alan, is Achieving RPO and RTO Objectives with ZFS Part 1. Yes. Confusingly written by Jim. (laughs) Well, link to that in the show notes as usual. Alan, you linked to an announcement about the LISA conference.
1: Yeah. So after 35 years of the Large Installation System Administrators Conference, They're announcing that after the one they had just a couple of uh, weeks ago where uh, we talked about one of the presentations here on the podcast, uh, the one from Brendan Gregg about the future of computing, but they've announced that it will no longer exist as a separate conference and they will move some of that systems engineering focused content to one of their other conferences, uh, SRECon. So I guess in recent years, the attendance has been about a thousand people with uh, as many as a hundred speakers. I went to one, I think it was in 2017 or 2018. It really was classical system administration, although it was really focused on large, uh, institutions. So it was all like government labs and universities and, and research things and stuff like that. Um, thinking of places with thousands or tens of thousands of users rather than what you consider, you know, a normal IT department. It was really, uh, this kind of different scale. It was a lot different than most of the conferences I go to in that it was very expensive and everybody that was there was doing it for work. It wasn't, you know, like the more community open source conferences that I normally go to, but it had a lot of really interesting stuff and training and so on. And the fact that it's getting kind of merged into that SRE con, I found to be somewhat interesting just because of the way what being a sysadmin means is, has been changing over the last so many years with, the idea of the cloud and the idea of things like Kubernetes and and just everything has to be done at a massive scale. There's You don't administer individual machines necessarily anymore. Or, you know, there's this perception that you don't, even though, as it turns out, a lot of times you still do uh, also administer individual machines. Everybody administers individual machines, whether they understand it or not. Yes. Well, and especially, you know, Sometimes it's amusing to watch people use tools designed to administer thousands of machines, to administer three machines, and spend a lot more time doing it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why everything's so hard.
2: You know, honestly, though,
1: uh, I'm not sure
2: that the, the Lisa conference going away has much to do with Lisa itself or, you know, any kind of change in system administration versus just there's been a pandemic Conferences are getting reaped left and right because it turns out the virtual conference model has not made sponsors happy. Uh, for the most part, it hasn't made attendees all that happy either. And uh, there's a lot of them that are either in
1: danger or have already closed their doors. This one was interesting because they made the announcement a couple of weeks after they just had the conference online. So it wasn't there saying we're canceling it for this year because obvious reasons. It's literally we just had it. And after 35 years, we've decided this topic doesn't deserve its own conference anymore.
2: Well, I mean, it's kind of the best time to do it, right? Yeah. And again, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that really nails down, you know, where the reason for the closing comes from so concretely. Because just either it makes sense to do it or it doesn't. And it's a lot
1: harder to get sponsors. Right. I'm just saying a year from now, we're hoping to be back to regular conferences,
0: right? Yeah. We can, but hope. Yeah, exactly. But I did, it's not a conference, but my event, Foss Talk Live, which used to be just this thing in a pub, we did that online this year, and it was good fun and everything, but it was just nowhere near as good fun, and it was an awful lot of effort to organize, and we're talking about doing it in the pub next time, but if things don't go the way we want, and you know, we don't want to get too political about that, but things may well be in a similar situation to now, where it's like, mm, we could maybe, maybe not, and... You know, how many years can it not happen before you just decide? Well, just let's call it. And it sounds like that might be at least part of this, because usually there's more than one reason, right? It's it's a whole host of reasons, and that could well be a big part of this one.
2: Yeah, it could be. I, I don't think we'll ever know exactly, you know, how how the reasoning broke down. But it, it's pretty easy to speculate about, you know, the pandemic playing a big role. It's also pretty easy to speculate, you know, uh, about the original thing. Just that. It's not so much that system administration has become less important as that with the kinds of prices that you had to pay to attend or to sponsor Lisa, system administration needed to not only be important, but to have like a big cachet. And DevOps has definitely stolen the cachet from classical system administration.
1: Importance of either regardless. Yes, I think that was more the angle I was going for is that these concepts of DevOps and SRE have meant a lot of people have turned away from sysadmin and and don't realize how kind of like a lot of trades and so on. We're going to get to this point a number of years from now as a large cohort of the classic system administrators retire and there's not going to be a, a replacement for them that does it the old Unix way or <laughs>
2: whatever. Uh, does this mean I get to be the vastly overpaid COBOL programmer of like the
1: 2030s? Probably. Sweet. <laughs> Yeah, you and I are set, and and you know a lot of the people that that listen to the show are. But uh, the real question is going to be: is is that going to be enough people? <laughs> you know, we keep hearing these concepts like the operating system is dead, and you know it's a solved problem, and like it really isn't. No. and just doing more and more upstack, you're just layers and layers. It's like, have you ever seen uh, somebody's house that's just had like five different layers of flooring done on top of it? It's like at some point you need, if the wood underneath is rotten, putting down another set of linoleum isn't going to help anything.
2: Well, that, and you know, the other thing that everybody always says that is pretty difficult to argue with is that, you know, the, the traditional PC is... It's not dead, but certainly it's importance is scaled way back in favor of what mobile devices, you know, phones, iPads and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it is your Android phone or, or iPhone, you know, on the other end of an Ansible or puppet stack. No, it is not. And it's not going to be.
0: But equally, you don't have any control over what software it runs, pretty much, unless you really want to get down and dirty with Android. But even that's becoming less and less possible these days.
2: Well, you've certainly got control over what software it runs. You just don't have any control over the, uh, the operating system itself. But... System administration does not begin and end with the operating system. I mean, if it did, then, you know, Al and I would just be like installing Linux or FreeBSD on a box and, you know, handing it off to devs and be like, there you go. Well, that's not what the sysadmin job is. Like, you're supporting the stack considerably further down than that. You know, you, you have to actually support and architect, you know, applications in the way data flows, you know, from one to the other and how you back it up and restore it, et cetera. And granted, most people aren't doing much of that on their mobile devices and that's kind of half the point of how they're set up but less does not mean none
1: the people that are all like oh soon you'll just have a tablet and you won't need a pc at all i'm like it is a pc (laughs) they're all pcs yes that's that's
2: true the cloud is pcs pcs are pcs your android phone is a pc your ipad is
1: a pc it's all freaking pcs right yes sorry desktop but you know the operating system that runs on that tablet was written by a person using a keyboard, not a touch screen.
2: At least for now, but yep. <laughs> you, you know they're doing more and more in in terms of uh, AI assisted programming. There may come the day that you're not Just sitting there pressing tab until the right code comes
1: out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're not even pressing tab. You're just like you know telling your assistant you know oh, try another one, Siri, until you get a code block
1: you like. Yeah, I saw a really interesting presentation uh, from a guy who has suffering from RSI from writing too much code and, and bad keyboarding. But using text-to-speech software, but he taught it animal sounds for all the weird programmer things, like open curly brace. So it's like, you know, quack and moo to open and close curly braces or something like that. And it was pretty amusing to watch him be able to get to like 70% of his original typing speed, but writing like Python code rather than text that most text-to-speech software is really designed around. It's like keyboard shortcuts without the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. But it's also just amusing to listen to because of all the animal noises.
2: <laughs> if I had to do that, uh, I'm, I'm afraid it would absolutely be swears. It would be horrible. Nobody would be <laughs> able to listen to a
1: programming session with a straight face. Teach it the whole like I am Groot thing where it's all just different
0: intonations of swear words. And that makes all the different symbols. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CheckMK. Go to checkmk.com slash 25admins. Checkmk is the best way to monitor your complex and hybrid IT infrastructure, bridging the gap between IT ops and DevOps teams. With Checkmk, you can go from zero to monitoring in less than 10 minutes and quickly gain a complete view of your IT infrastructure, no matter how complex. Checkmk can support thousands of devices across different locations, and it's easy to set them up. From physical infrastructure to hybrid environments, Checkmk can cope with the demanding needs of high-performing organizations. With around 2,000 plugins available, Checkmk supports industry-standard monitoring requirements out of the box. As well as operating systems, you can also monitor Cisco, HP, AWS, SAP, Docker, Azure, and Kubernetes. So go to checkmk.com slash 25admins and try out the open source or enterprise edition. That's checkmk.com slash two five admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to two dot five admins slash support. And remember, for five dollars or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or questions, show at two dot five So Scott writes in, I've put three wireless access points in our house. It's an old house with thick plaster walls. This was adequate in the pre-days, but now with Wi-Fi calling and always-on video conferencing, the family wants to roam between access points. Have you guys had any luck setting up good roaming? My three Netgear Orbeez are adequate when I'm sitting still, but they stutter and stumble when moving between rooms. I hear Ubiquiti has good roaming, but they seem to have gone full shady recently. Have you seen roaming that works well? Any hints on how to set it up? The biggest
2: key to good roaming between access points is to turn down the, uh, the transmit power. If you've got your access points just absolutely screaming out into the void, then devices that are bad about roaming are going to tend to stick with one, even when they really should shift to a different one. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is going to come down to the client device, and there's a limited amount of tricks that an AP or a mesh system can do to overcome that the way that the 802.11 spec is written, basically the device gets the final call on what access point it connects to. So the best way to convince it to actually change is to make things suck more if it's connected to the wrong AP when the right AP is close by. And that is something that you can do in the in the Netgear Orbi firmware. Now, you, I don't think you can do that in like the mobile app, but if you go into the proper, you know, web interface for the Orbi, I'm pretty sure you can set TX strength in there. I know you can on like Nighthawk routers, and uh, I haven't noticed any of the advanced functionality in their Nighthawk line being missing from Orbi.
1: Yeah, I think the the number one thing you see with people trying to tune their Wi-Fi and making it worse is jacking up the transmit power, thinking that's going to solve the problem. Because the first thing you have to think about is the other half of any Wi-Fi connection is your device talking back to the AP, and you're not jacked up the power there. So if you can hear the AP, but the AP can't hear you, you're screaming into the void. And so if you have the transmit power jacked up too much, you're going to get this stuttering problem where your phone can hear the AP, but the AP can't hear what your phone is saying. And your phone won't switch because it still thinks it's getting a better signal from the further away AP just because the power is so high.
2: Yeah, so basically what you want here, um, ideally you don't want ever to be farther than one room away from the nearest AP. Now, some people will argue that or not wanna install that many APs or whatever, but that is certainly my recommendation is you don't wanna be more than two walls away from the nearest access point. Now, the other thing beyond that is when you've got multiple access points, if you walk to dead in the middle between two access points, you should have a good connection to either access point. Now, if you walk one room to the side closer to either of those access points, if you force a connection to the farther away one, it should suck. If it doesn't suck, you've done it wrong and you need to turn down the TX strength.
1: Yeah, as with almost all Wi-Fi, it comes down to doing a good site survey, which is a lot of work and a pain in the ass, but it's how you get good Wi-Fi. Yeah. Now, the other thing, uh, you asked the question about what can I
2: do that's not Ubiquity, because I think Ubiquity has gone like super shady, which I understand. And uh, my recommendation there, if you want to make a switch to a proper you know, wire backhaul AP system and you don't like Ubiquity, uh, go TP-Link. A lot of people have a perception of TP-Link as you know being kind of a cheap off-brand or whatever, but uh, their access points are slamming. I have tested... Pretty much everybody's access points and, uh, you know, in the shootouts that I've done, TP-Link has come out not just like near the top or in the top three, or both they beat everything in terms of performance. Now, at the top end of that range, you know... That's a relatively close margin. Like, I've got all Ubiquity stuff in my house, and I am not about to rip it all out just to replace it with TP-Link because the TP-Link access points outperformed it. They do, but it's not a wide enough margin to be worth just tearing perfectly good equipment out and replacing it. However, if I move tomorrow and my access points were like, you know, staying with this house as a selling point or whatever, I wouldn't buy the Ubiquity again. I would buy TP-Link. They have some serious advantages over the Ubiquiti. There is a free as in beer software controller called Omada for the uh, TP-Link access points. It's very similar to Ubiquiti's Unify software controller. It's cross-platform. You can run it on Windows, Linux, or Mac. And it it has pretty much the same functionality as Ubiquiti's, but it's a lot less shiny. It's very much more plain looking and just kind of like, you know, text organized and old school tables, which some people will hate and some people will be like, oh good, there's less fluff to look through to get to the thing that I actually want. I personally kind of prefer the Omada controller. TP-Link access points also have this really neat advantage for smaller setups. If you don't want to run a software controller, you don't have to. Let's say you've only got two or three access points. You're like, it's just not that much work for me to configure them all to be on the same SSID with the same password and call it a day. Well, you can do that because you've got a full featured onboard web UI on every single individual access point. And if you just configure them all to be on the same network name with the same password, it will work just as well as it does with the controller. You lose the centralized management, but if you only have two or three access points, you may not care about that. And if you're not using the centralized management, you don't have to worry about backing up the centralized management. It's, you know, one thing less that you have to install, maintain, you
0: know, whatever. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the Accountability Coaching Service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalised learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free 7-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins. Okay, Josh says, right now I have an external hard drive connected to a Raspberry Pi at my parents' house that I use as an offsite backup. I have a script that connects to the VPN and does a ZFS send and receive to transfer the data. My issue is bandwidth. Since the backup only does a delta transfer, it's not that much data, but... If it has to send more than 25 gigabytes, it locks up their internet. I have implemented a QoS rule to throttle my backup, but it doesn't seem to be helping. I was looking at solutions like Tarsnap, but I have about 5 terabytes of data and the pricing structure on their site is confusing. Linode is another option, but I don't really feel like making my current setup again, as it appears to be inefficient. My question is is it worth it to change my backups to the cloud or should I just figure out a better networking management solution for my current setup? I'm using TrueNAS as my main data store if that matters.
2: Okay, so the first comment is if uh, Josh was using Syncoid as his replication management tool, he would already have built-in throttling available. You can just set the uh, source bandwidth to however many megabytes a second or kilobytes a second you want it to and it just works. You don't need to do anything
1: else. Yeah, uh, or using something like mBuffer or, you know, there's plenty of other tools to let you do that kind of throttling inline in the ZFSN receive pipeline.
2: That's actually what Syncoid does already. Syncoid just constructs the commands for you. Uh, it uses mBuffer for network buffering and it by default will use uh, LZO for compression. And uh, if you use uh, the source bandwidth limit or target bandwidth limit, both of which obviously accomplish the same thing in the end, it actually accomplishes that by using PV's throttling option currently, I believe.
1: Oh, there's a throttling option in mBuffer.
2: Sure. They're both already in that pipeline, though, because PV provides your progress bar and mBuffer provides buffering. So you can
1: implement the throttling with either. If you tell mBuffer the size, it can do its own progress bar. It couldn't
0: when I first wrote Syncoid. That's entirely possible. (laughs) It is... Been a while, I suppose, at this point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I find strange about this question is that if it has to send more than 25 gigabytes, that isn't a per second or whatever, that's a total... So when it says locks up their internet, does he just mean when he's sending for a long time, it just
1: uses up so much of their internet that they get annoyed because they can't stream Netflix or does he mean the ISP like has a per day data cap of some kind or is just detecting that they're uploading too much and throttling or, or something against them? He
2: almost certainly, in my opinion, means that he's overwhelming far too large buffers in the modem or the router at his parents' house. And it just ends up being, you know, a a latency and bandwidth nightmare trying to use the internet while that's going on. It's very easy to screw up a QoS rule that in theory would alleviate that. But um, I mean, I, I've overcome exactly this issue at countless small businesses using the, the bandwidth throttling built into Syncoid, and I can guarantee it works. I used to back up uh, 10 terabyte single VM image files over a residential style connection at a small business with a whopping 250 kilobit upload, as I recall, and uh, worked quite nicely.
0: <laughs> How long did that take?
2: Uh, Not bad. Overnight. like From day to day, it actually was not that bad because you usually didn't end up with more than about a gig worth of changed data in a day. Now, your initial backup, uh, what I would typically do, and I still do this now, even you know with modern pipe sizes, I'll usually pre-seed an off-site backup. You have the machine in the office, you do the first full replication over the LAN, then you take the sucker offsite site and you just do incremental replications from then on out. And uh, if for some reason you ever end up breaking the replication chain,
1: you just drag it back into the office and reseed it again with another full. I did the same thing with a one petabyte array. I uh, had both of the giant, you know, whole rack machines shipped to the same place. They loaded up 700 terabytes of data over 40 gig back-to-back connection and then shipped the second one eight hours away to a bunker somewhere. uh, And they continued to sync over a one gigabit per second point-to-point link. And uh the replication did get a little screwy one time, but luckily we had... uh put ZFS holds on a couple of snapshots from early enough that we only had to re-replicate about 75 terabytes over the point-to-point link. Moving back to Josh's
2: question, in the second part, he asks about cloud-based solutions. And uh, you know, given his description of it's his personal stuff that he's backing up to a Raspberry Pi at his parents' house, uh, the correct cloud solution, if he wants one, is almost certainly going to be ZFS.rent. That's a relatively new service that allows you to very inexpensively host your own backups in the cloud Typically by literally just shipping them a hard drive or hard drives, which they will then host for you at a cost of ten dollars per month. Uh, you get your own VM that's running ZFS. You can set up your pool however you would like it to and back up to it however you want. And um as long as you don't go over a reasonably generous bandwidth
1: cap, you'll just be spending the ten dollars per month. Yeah, you know, the bandwidth is less of an issue because, you know, on the incoming side from a service provider point, it's less of an issue for that. It's mostly as long as you're not restoring too much, it's not going to be an issue.
2: Yeah. Now, the other neat thing about that, that um, hilariously, the guy running ZFS.Rent does not mention anywhere in his documentation, because you're shipping him drives to put into machines for you, that also means that you can precede your ZFS.Rent backup with a full. You can ship the drives to yourself first, you know, assuming you're just buying new ones from Amazon or Newegg or whoever, instead of drop shipping them direct to ZFS.Rent, you can send them to your house, go ahead and do your first full right there on the LAN and then ship that off to CFS.rent where they'll slot the drives into a machine. You can import your pool and immediately begin doing your incrementals that might otherwise have taken you potentially easily a month or two to get
1: your first full done. Well, yeah, like Josh says, he's got five terabytes of data. So that's definitely the approach I'd recommend is start by getting the external drive filled up with the five terabytes of data uh, with a pool on it and then just export it uh, ship it to there, and once it's online, you can just zpool import it, and then do an incremental. And it's only a couple of weeks uh, while it was in the mail or whatever that's missing, and then you're back to just doing your nightlies, and everything's nice and easy.
2: And Josh didn't ask, but we would be remiss if we didn't go ahead and mention ZFS native encryption. Particularly when you're using a cloud service rather than your hopefully pretty well trusted parents, you may want to consider using encrypted data sets. You can replicate your encrypted data sets and Zvols off to your cloud backup service or even at your parents' house. You know, I don't know, maybe your mom's a little shady, <laughs> but you don't have to load the key on the backup target. So you can replicate incrementally. It works just as well, just as fast, the same way that replication always did. You just have to be sure to add the dash W flag to your ZFS send command or, you know, add send options equals W to your syncoid command and it will do a raw send. That does not require the key to do incremental replication to your target. All the stuff will be there. You can ZFS list your snapshots and see that your replication is working, but you can't actually access any of the data without that key. So you never have to put that out in the cloud to begin with. Your data remains private and safe. And if you need to spot check it, you can actually just replicate backwards from the cloud to your machine is one way. Or if you're feeling mostly trustful about your cloud service provider, you can temporarily load the key and then immediately delete it again. If you just want to make sure that you can see stuff right there without having to move an entire data set
1: back and forth. Exactly. Part of the design of ZFS native encryption, that it's still possible to do scrub and resilver and deal with all the other administrative stuff in ZFS without needing the keys loaded ever. And so the remote backup provider doesn't have to have access
0: to your data for any reason at any time. Uh, it makes it really handy for this use case. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com 25a and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare-metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to lino.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's lino.com slash 25A. Okay, Alex says, I'm replacing my Amazon Cloud Cam with local RTSP cameras and a MotionEye instance running on my Raspberry Pi. My ISP doesn't provide me with a static IP, and I'm not sure about the current state of free dynamic DNS offerings. I read about and implemented a reverse SSH setup to a VPS, and I'm able to access the local Natted Raspberry Pi from the public internet. My question is, are there security implications I need to be aware of? The Raspberry Pi is on the guest Wi-Fi access point. Poor man's VLAN, I suppose. So no access to my other devices. Am I missing an obvious solution for this type of setup?
2: As long as you're happy with whatever authentication is required to access the cloud side of that in order to actually look at your cameras, then no, it sounds like you're pretty much covered.
1: Yeah, like I'm guessing from the sounds of it, using SSH to forward a specific port from the public IP on the VPS to the Raspberry Pi. And as long as that port is what you want to be available to everybody, then yeah, that's... You've done a VPN with just one port. It's actually probably the most secure way you could do it. The only recommendation I might have is, you know, r- the reverse SSH
2: thing is a little janky. Uh, you could easily replace that with a proper wire guard tunnel that runs in the same direction from inside the you know the the LAN to the cloud as far as initiating the tunnel. Once you've initiated it, then you know you've just got an always on VPN and it just
1: works and it's great. Yeah. The biggest uh, possible problem with the SSH one is if it gets disconnected, is the SSH configured to auto-reconnect? And if you're gonna have to spend a bunch of time to make that work, it's like WireGuard is just a nicer solution for that. Uh, the only difference is you have to manage forwarding whatever port to the the WireGuard internal VPN IP on the VPS, but that's, you know, a couple lines of whatever firewall you're using on the on the VPS.
2: Well, you could also get fancy with it and set your, uh, if, if the only thing your guest network is really for is that, then, I mean, you can even just set your WireGuard instance as the default gateway on your guest network and just automatically have the traffic go that way. You don't have to configure the individual devices at all.
0: Let's do a bit of feedback then. Axel writes to us, I have an idea of what you can do with old mechanical hard drives. Wipe them and send them to me. My music label, Spinning Rust, releases electronic music on old repurposed drives, and I'm always on the lookout for more discs. I'll pay for the shipping and handling. You can contact me on Twitter at spinningrustrec and also spinningrust.bandcamp.com. This idea is so dumb that it's genius.
2: Nice try, FBI. Nice.
0: But like, you, you see people releasing stuff on mini discs and, you know, eight tracks and, um, you know, all sorts of old formats. I've never heard of this before, so. I think my biggest concern is, how is your average music
1: listener going to get the songs off of this thing?
0: That's the point of these old formats. It's like, that's kind of part of the charm, I think. I suppose.
1: If they really want to pay for the
0: shipping, I have tons of old one-terabyte hard drives. Well, I did actually look at the Bandcamp, and it's uh, 2.5 drives from laptops because they're obviously cheaper to ship around. I think that's mostly what he's looking for. So anyway, if you've got a bunch of old drives, especially laptop ones, then uh, send them to Axel. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSsnet, And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.